Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Swami. I run machine learning uh, business for AWS. Um, and today morning, you saw a slew of announcements all across AWS, and uh, probably like 30 new announcements in machine learning world. So what I wanted to do today is not to recap all the announcements that Andy did. Instead, actually dive deep into an under-the-hood look on uh, what's happening under some of these launches. So let me start off with the core mission of what is it that my team does in AWS. So our mission is to put machine learning in the hands of every developer, irrespective of the skill level, irrespective of whether they have two PhDs in uh, machine learning or they are an ML enthusiast who has started taking courses in machine learning and want to build their own ML models, or they are application developers who have no background in machine learning and no ML experience, but they want to actually be able to build cool applications powered by AI and ML. So that's actually uh, our core mission. And uh, we announced a whole slew of services last year. And since then, one of the key things what our team has done is we have actually had more than 200 launches of significant features and services this year alone. And this is one of the reasons why, as Andy mentioned, more machine learning happens on AWS than anywhere else. And in fact, for example, Intuit is a, a great customer of ours. They actually used our, our product SageMaker to accelerate the process of developing machine learning models for personalization or fraud detection. And they tell us that what used to take them six months to build a machine learning model end-to-end -end has been cut down to less than one week. When you think about it, uh, six months to less than one week, that's a huge productivity gain. Similarly, we have C-SPAN, who uses our AI services like recognition to do automated video indexing or we have uh, various customers such as Formula One, whom you uh, heard today talking about actually sports analytics and insights powered by SageMaker, or Siemens, who's building cool new financial applications uh, uh, using TensorFlow on AWS and so forth. So before I get into each of these uh, stack, I just want to do a quick recap of our Amazon machine learning stack. As I mentioned, our core mission is to actually provide the right capabilities for the right set of developer. And the way we look at it, there are three layers of stack. The bottommost layer is what we call as machine learning frameworks and infrastructure. These are geared towards expert practitioners. These are folks with um, things like advanced degrees, and they are very passionate about their framework of choice, and they either love TensorFlow or they swear by PyTorch, or they are very religious about MXNet or Chainer or so forth. What they expect from us is that the ability and freedom to innovate. And for them, our job is to provide the best frameworks and the most optimized, irrespective of uh, whether they run it on GPU or CPU or edge devices and so forth. That's why in the morning you heard Andy talk about us having dedicated teams working on TensorFlow, MXNet, and PyTorch. In fact, if you talk to some of the members of my team, these teams in my organization, they in fact even have friendly competition on who actually 
has the fastest training time to train a computer vision model or NLP model. So they are quite religious about each and every framework, and uh, that's kind of our job. If my teams compete among themselves, the customer wins. And uh, in this, the next layer is what we call as ML services. These are services that we offer to make it easy for developers to build their own machine learning models where they can build, train, tune, and deploy these machine learning models. Kind of like what Formula One was talking about today morning where they are able to build new insights for fan engagement or actually like overtake prediction or so forth. Or Intuit about uh, they have their data lake in uh, AWS and S3 and they want to be able to build a personalization model and anomaly detection models and so forth. So this is where our flagship service SageMaker uh, that is one we launched last year, and today we announced a lot of new uh, upgrades to SageMaker, and uh, I'll go into some of them later today, what Andy touched on. And the final layer is what we call as AI services. These are actually services which are purely API-driven, where I, as an application developer with no ML experience, will be able to convert a text into speech, so that if I'm in, uh, uh, building, let's say, an educational app like what Duolingo did, I will be able to build an application that can actually generate lessons in different languages without even having to write a deep learning model to convert text to speech. Or I can actually transcribe what's happening in a contact center by using Amazon Transcribe or I will be able to analyze images and videos, uh, not just for like media and entertainment, but even actually like nonprofit use cases like Marinus Analytics, who uses some of our image analytics services to actually uh, even fight human trafficking. And then we have our language services that enable you to analyze what's in a document or translate our written text. And then we have uh, today morning announced a bunch of new AI services. So, you heard a lot of announcements today in machine learning. You might be wondering, like, what is the method to madness? What are we actually trying to do? So why are we launching so many things? And the answer is really simple. It is about we are focused on solving the toughest challenges that hold back success with machine learning. Of all uh, technologies, when you think about it, uh, machine learning is probably going to be one of the most transformative uh, technologies because here, when you think about cloud, which disrupted IT industry and became the new way to build applications for IT industry, machine learning has the potential to transform every industry irrespective of what kind of sector they operate in. So, and when we actually engage with our customers and uh, various of them who are running on our platform, three things that are really constantly popping up on three challenges that are facing uh, uses of machine learning today. And those are flexibility and cost. Now, when you look about, uh, think about flexibility and cost, these are actually all around, oh, my bad, sorry. So, um, how do I actually build my machine learning models? Do I have the flexibility to use the tool of my choice? and how do I run it in a cost-efficient manner. Then the second one is around data. Machine learning, it all starts with data. Do I have enough data? And if I have enough data, how do I label it? 
And then um, the third one is ease of use. Do I have enough people with the skill levels required to build these machine learning models and so forth? That's why today morning we actually launched various features to address each of these challenges. To make it really easy in terms of flexibility and cost, we launched Optimized TensorFlow, which is the fastest way and the best way to run TensorFlow workloads on AWS. We also launched two days ago Apache MXNet Dynamic Training, which makes it easy for you to dynamically scale your training environment. And then today we announced Elastic Inference and Inferentia. And in data, we talked about ground truth. And then in ease of use, we talked about a bunch of services. Now, what I wanted to do today is, instead of recapping what the service does, I wanted to give an under-the-hood look into how each of these services solve the problem that it is setting out to solve. So let's get right into it. So now let's look at the flexibility and cost at the bottommost layer on the frameworks and infrastructure. One of the key differentiators for AWS is we are framework agnostic. We don't prescribe to you that uh, one framework is the answer. What is the question? We actually say, hey, if you really love NLP, uh, PyTorch, because you're trying to solve and uh, NLP problems, maybe you're excited about PyTorch, you'll make sure it runs the best. For computer vision, still, there is a huge amount of CAFE and CAFE2 workloads run on it. We will support that too. So similarly, if you are really love Keras and TensorFlow, we want to support that too. And Apache MXNet is really popular among enterprise developers who cares about performance and so forth. We want to actually support that too. So what we want to provide is an infrastructure that you can run them fully managed or self-managed. And the key mission in my team is to make sure all these frameworks run the best on AWS. And when you look at TensorFlow, which is probably one of the most popular uh, deep learning frameworks, now it is if you look at the overall usage of TensorFlow on the cloud, more than 85% of TensorFlow workloads in the cloud run on AWS. We have customers like Autodesk using TensorFlow uh, models to do things like 3D modeling, or we have Intuit doing things like personalization, or we have Pinterest doing like visual search uh, on their pins and so forth. So, when we actually hear from them, and many of these customers are pushing the envelope in terms of what TensorFlow limits are. And uh, as they scale the amount of data that they need to do and how often they need to deploy, what they really find is there are limits to TensorFlow scalability. So as Andy mentioned, the stock TensorFlow, when you're actually trying to push it to train faster and scale up to 256 GPUs, the scaling efficiency, what we typically observe is 65%, that means 35% of your GPUs, and these are pretty expensive as you can, as you all know. They actually are not as utilized as you would like. So that's why we set out to actually solve this challenge, and today in SageMaker and also in Deep Learning Army, we are launching AWS Optimized TensorFlow. So what is AWS Optimized TensorFlow? If you look at the way how we optimize TensorFlow, now, there are two ways to go about it. You can actually put a lot of custom logic into the hardware that are very specific to the underlying models and so forth. 
The other way is you look at the infrastructure patterns, you look at actually what are the communication patterns that happen and how the weights get distributed in the training phase and so forth. And you want to optimize the underlying infrastructure layer on the distributor training process. So this is where Horovod is a really good example of what uh, you can do to improve the scaling efficiency. And this is where we worked with Horovod and the community to make it really uh, faster and cheaper and uh, really run optimized on AWS. And that is one of the reasons why the fastest training time uh, so far that is recorded on TensorFlow for ResNet 50 is 30 minutes. This is a public recorded one. And with these updates on the AWS Optimize, it's going to be 14 minutes. But again, as much as these benchmarks are exciting, the key thing you should take away from them is not necessarily the benchmark of individual models. It is that the optimizations that we uh, did here, it's not applicable to only one specific model. It is our one specific hardware type. It is something you can actually broadly apply for various kinds of applications. And this is something we are going to be continuously working with uh, our partners to, and make sure that we can optimize and continue to make it faster and cheaper for uh, customers like yourself. And I talked about the fastest record. Now let's talk about actually what does it mean in terms of uh, having a 90% scaling efficiency. That means here is an example of like a uh, computer vision model. Uh, that's um, a model called ResNet 50, which is a uh, popular um, computer vision model, where when we train that model on a single GPU, the time it takes is something uh, close to seven hours. Now that gets dropped down to 14 minutes with scaling up to 256 GPUs. Then similarly on an LSTM or a deep speech model, what used to take six days, think about it, if you're trying to actually build an Alexa-like uh, speech recognition system, I, as a speech scientist, a data scientist, I had to be waiting for an update to my model for six days. Now it gets dropped down to less than uh, three and a half hours. Again, the scalability and the efficiency is not just about cost savings, but it's also a significant improvement in the time savings for developers who are building these models. Now, in the morning, and even now, I touched on TensorFlow. But what about other, actually, deep learning models? Now, let's take a look at the other two popular models, Apache MXNet. One of the interesting things about uh, Apache MXNet is this is one of the most uh, popular models among enterprise developers. If you see Samsung SDS, or actually like Simpress, or we have customers like Ulfram, and Intel and NTT Docomo, they are all actually uh, picking Apache MXNet, not just because it's extremely scalable, it almost actually provides a near linear scaling efficiency, but it is also really easy to start with its uh, new API called Gluon, where it actually provides a really easy to use interface for like computer vision and NLP problems. And in fact, uh, the other reason it is becoming more and more popular among enterprise developers are that uh, they added a really new, uh, new cool feature uh, for Java Scala APIs. So typically, even in uh, a growing enterprise, even within Amazon, 
machine learning scientists and data scientists really love Python, but engineers who grew up as engineers, not as ML experts, they are either used to Java or various other tools. And for them, suddenly jumping into saying like, hey, we trained this model, and then now go run it in production, and then they are saying like, okay, how do I package it? How do I deploy it? How does it fit in my framework? All these stuff are like big challenges for them. And this is where actually MXNet has really been in a, a great advantage for many of these enterprises. Now, let me actually showcase this with a simple use case. And probably the one that you may not really expect. Let me see, my clicker seems to be prefetching faster than I thought, so. So, Chick-fil-A. So, I'm a vegetarian myself, so I don't go to Chick-fil-A that often, as you can imagine, but, uh, but I gotta say, their fries are really good. And one of their biggest, uh, one of the problems that they set out to solve was like, how do you actually identify when fries become stale? that they have been sitting around for more than two minutes. And they were actually asking, saying like, can we actually use computer vision and identify fries that have exceeded the whole time? And so they actually had like engineers with no experience in computer vision. These are folks who don't have like PhD in computer vision and so forth. And some of them in their group were actually like even interns. And they were able to build a model using MXNet and Gluon computer vision model to build an end-to-end -end working system to do this. Think about actually the power of actually how easy now leveraging deep learning is using frameworks like these. Now the other popular framework is PyTorch. This is something uh, heavily used in uh, Facebook and uh, growing huge popularity among researchers, especially in NLP community and so forth. Now, the reason customers really love PyTorch is because it's flexible. It is really useful for fast prototyping. And now, and it's versatile and portable. Now, in AWS, we have made it really easy for customers to be able to prototype it in SageMaker and export those models into Onyx, and you can run it in SageMaker either in the cloud or deploy it using Greengrass and so forth. So, Again, uh, I'll talk about later how we are even accelerating and optimizing some of these uh, PyTorch models um, later. That's why AWS has become the best place to run even PyTorch. Now, before we go up to some of these machine learning services we announced, this is something uh, we couldn't actually uh, touch on in the morning. One of the things that is unique about machine learning, while software development itself is a very collaborative process, where teams tend to work together in development environment like scrums and so forth, machine learning is an even more demanding and collaborative process because you have like data engineers, you have data scientists, you have uh, DevOps engineers, all are working together to take your data, run ETL, do data cleanup, and then write the algorithms and train them and then deploy them. So this is, when you think about it as an enterprise, now you have to actually get this diverse set of people and get them to really work together and figure out a way to even organize these experiments. When you're building out a model, it's not always like, okay, here is a container 
uh, image, let's go run it in production. You gotta be able to track saying like, which data set did I use to actually get this model built? And uh, how did I go about it? Uh, and which algorithm did I use and so forth? So this is where last week we announced SageMaker workflows where we launched features such as experiment management, which makes it really easy to organize, track, and evaluate model training. And then we make it easy for this group to collaborate, where we link GitHub, CodeCommit, and various uh, Git repositories. And also, we made it easy for you to track the end-to-end -end workflow with things like step functions to make sure you can actually orchestrate the end-to-end -end ETLs and then data transformation and the SageMaker pipelines and deployment and so forth. In addition to that, we also integrate with popular open source tools like Apache Airflow. So that's on the frameworks side of the house. Now let's look at uh, the data side. Now, if you look at the data side, the biggest blocker when it comes to actually machine learning today is all around data, and is the data ready for me to build a model? So even though SageMaker last year has cleared many of those roadblocks on actually building, training, and tuning, and hosting these models, now data is one of the biggest challenges why you're not able to leverage machine learning on many of these use cases. And this is where today morning we launched Ground Truth where Andy talked about how ground truth makes it really easy for customers to be able to label machine learning training data easily and accurately. So now what you can do with it is that you can actually upload, let's say, a bunch of images in an S3 bucket and pass it on to ground truth data. And let's say you want to do things like object detection and so forth. It actually has pre-built workflows, ready-made, but you can also define custom workflows. And you can either use the public workforce like Mechanical Turk, which has more than 500,000 Turkers, or you can use private workforce, or you can actually use even pre-approved vendors. And you can actually get your machine labels or the ground truth annotations done. One example that actually clearly stands out is like Tyson Foods. They are a leading poultry uh, food uh, manufacturer, and they had an interesting problem where they wanted to identify when fresh poultry comes into their warehouse, they wanted to be able to track where it goes and uh, how uh, fresh it is. When you think about it, again, Tyson Foods, they are not going to be able to employ like hundreds of uh, human annotators to go build this training data set. What they ideally want is a system where I upload huge number of photos of these images and be able to get labels done on which ones are working and which ones are uh, good and which ones are not and so forth. So this is where Tyson was able to use ground truth and they got really excited. On the flip side, in a more nuanced use cases like Change Healthcare, which is a leading healthcare technology company, they were able to use ground truth and its uh, automated annotation um, with their own uh, expert workforce to be able to label unstructured data. Now, we touched on ground truth, but the other side of the equation is, if you don't even have raw data to label, how do you actually teach machine learning systems to make decisions when there is little to no training data? 
this is where reinforcement learning comes in. So in the morning, we kind of gave a quick summary of this grid. For machine learning purists who are PhD, you might be saying this is an oversimplification. Yes, it is true. It is an oversimplification of uh, decades of research in machine learning algorithms. But when you think about it, at the end of the day, supervised learning, such as uh, image recognition system or Alexa-style uh, speech recognition system, they get trained by a lot of data being fed in, in terms of labeled data, and then you make a decision, such as like when my daughter says, Alexa, play Frozen, it actually knows that, hey, the actual output of the text will be play Frozen, for instance. On the other end, you have unsupervised learning systems. These are systems where you don't need actually uh, much training data. In fact, uh, none in many cases, such as anomaly detection systems, where you can pass a time stream of data and it can identify anomaly, or uh, topic modeling systems and so forth. So, but the complexity of decisions that they make are not that high. Now, you might be wondering, saying like, what is the other box where you actually have a lot of training data, but you don't want any sophisticated decision? In reality, that's not really a useful problem, so let's ignore it. Now, the most interesting problem is, how do you actually start making really interesting decisions and really hard decisions when you don't have enough data? This is where reinforcement learning comes in. It kind of makes it uh, look like this is going to be the next big thing in machine learning. I don't want to overpromise what reinforcement learning can do or cannot do, but let me actually walk through what it is in a nutshell, as an under the hood. So reinforcement learning lets you actually learn by interacting with the real world, and it enables developers to model the real world problem as a simulation environment. Instead of actually trying to build huge amount of uh, ground truth training data set, now I can model a real-world uh, situation in a simulation world, and then employ certain kind of uh, trial and error uh, reward functions. It's um, to kind of actually see how the system does in a simulated en environment. Then optimize the learning strategy to maximize long-term rewards. And then model learns how to make complex decisions. So that's kind of reinforcement learning in a nutshell. I'll kind of explain this in a summary diagram. So I'll use the example of my three-year-old daughter. So when my three-year-old daughter takes up her toys from her uh, closet and then starts playing with it, at the end of it, if she cleans up without us having to remind, I say, hey, you get 15 minutes of screen time. But if she fights saying, like, I'm not going to clean it up, you, why don't you do it? Then I'm going to say, you know what, tomorrow you are not going to get any screen time, no YouTube or no frozen movie for you. So that's like an example of a simple reward function to kind of incentivize right behavior. All of you parents of uh, toddlers, you all know what I'm talking about. But nevertheless, uh, similarly, in a reinforcement learning system, you actually use reward functions to kind of train your underlying agent to act which way you want it to act in a uh, simulated environment. Then you actually collect training data to after you actually make these stations, and then collect the training data, and then train using that data in SageMaker, 
and then deploy the model. That's kind of reinforcement learning in a nutshell. Now, I talked about RL environment. What does it actually mean? In reality, it is a representation of the real world, and it is programmed to represent real world conditions. And then it enables your RL algorithms to interact with the user or a computer program. And then it also lets you do dynamic updates as well. The simulation environment can be sophisticated, like MATLAB or Simulink, where you can actually model a conveyor belt or so forth. Or you can write your own RL environment as well. Now, let's use a real-world example of like how we trained uh, Harry the humanoid to walk. Let me introduce the players here. There is a SageMaker training environment which trains the humanoid. And then there is the agent which makes the decision. Uh, the training first deploys the initial model to the agent. And then the RL agent actually interacts with the simulator. At first year, Harry the humanoid can't even stand up. It is actually trying to stand up, but it is constantly getting, these are like probably the first one hour of the training environment in the simulator, where it is constantly getting negative rewards because it is not even able to balance itself. Now, you observe what the model did and the decisions it took, and uh, make sure you collect the training data. Then later, through various iterations of actions and observations, now you're starting to see, maybe this is like at the end of the day one, that Harry the humanoid is probably trying to balance, either by leaning back or leaning forward and so forth. So now interactions in this environment now generate more and more training data. So now you can actually retrain these models and then make a model update altogether. And uh, then you can deploy a new agent and you rinse and repeat this process. So let's say we made a model update. Now, maybe after like a day two, Harry learns to stand and step. So that's actually some progress. Now, let's say this process end to end is called one episode. Now, multiple training episodes, as you continue to iterate over and over, it improves learning. So you repeat this process over and over again, and you will be able to get better and better results that finally the humanoid is able to even start running. So that's kind of like what happens in reinforcement learning in a nutshell in terms of a simulation environment. Now, if you see under the curves, what happens? I talked about the reward function. So initially, when we were training this uh, humanoid, if you see, the reward functions were really negative early on. And then later, we started getting more and more positive results. And then we started consistently getting really positive. And then eventually, the model learns how to walk and run end to end. So that's kind of our RL in a nutshell that you can do in SageMaker today. So that's why I believe reinforcement learning models enables you to make decisions and especially complex decisions. And it can be used in various uh, verticals like robotics, industrial control, autonomous vehicles, you name it. So a few other examples, I'll briefly touch on them. Uh, you can use them for things like vehicle routing, where you want to make 
decisions like how do I actually maximize the ability to fulfill customer orders but still be able to uh, deliver on time? Or you can manage financial portfolios and actually do various interesting things on buying and selling decisions. Or auto-scale your capacity. However, training these oral models can be really tricky because they are difficult to get started, they are too complex and hard to integrate the simulation, and training is computationally extensive and also requires trial and error. This is why SageMaker RL comes built in with all these environments end to end, and it makes it really easy to integrate various environment as well. I want to actually kind of, I'm quickly walking through so that you can see how our real world uh, use cases such as um, what our customers have done, such as GE Healthcare, are, has used reinforcement learning to build some new cool innovations on revolutionizing healthcare. So I'm really excited to introduce Ratna, the Director of Data Science from GE. Thank you, Swami. It's an honor to share stage with Swami. So at GE Healthcare, we build the best medical devices in the world and in over 120 countries. So what are we doing new now? So we want to move from just medical devices to smart medical devices. And today I'm going to talk to you about how we are leveraging AWS and SageMaker RL to accelerate our AI journey. So a few years ago, I got a call from my niece's uh, family that she and her husband met with an accident, and uh, her husband did not survive the trip to the hospital. And she was hospitalized, and uh, she had to wait about three hours before a radiologist could come and look at her x-ray. And this is in Bay Area, California. So we have one radiologist in 10,000 of us. And in remote countries like Kenya, there are only it went too fast. There are only 240,000, uh, one radiologist per 240,000 people. So you can see the domain expertise scarcity is real, and even in countries like US. So along with scarcity comes accuracy and timeliness. And here you see a publicly available chest x-ray. Just from chest x-ray, you can detect about more than 900 conditions. So that's from uh, our customer's perspective. Let's look at from the data science perspective. So this is an ultrasound image. One of our use cases are we are trying to measure the fetal brain to detect any abnormalities in um, uh, pregnancy, during the course of pregnancy. So uh, compared to X-ray, ultrasound is multiple slices. So you see the data explosion there. That's the complexity part. But also, we just don't make just X-ray machines. We have fleet of medical devices, monitoring devices, handheld devices, CT scans, MRIs. Each have different CPUs and GPU footprints and memory requirements and inference time limits. So that's where our challenge comes in. Scalability, how fast can we infer using these models? So how can we address all these uh, challenges of scalability, scarcity, and accuracy? 
this is a perfect case of AI. So here are a few of the models that I'm displaying that we, our team worked on. So the left one um, helps the doctors narrow the conditions and quantify the severity of them. But this one will put it in their list of to do things so that they can focus on the priorities, highest priority ones, and then go through the rest of the ones. So on the right side, not only the doctors, so uh, I don't know how many of you had a repeat and retake experience. So right when the x-ray is taken, the technician is alerted if the x-ray is of good quality or she, needs to, she or he needs to retake the x-ray. So uh, how does RL help in healthcare in medical devices with this problem? So as I said before, we have multiple devices, and we just do not want to focus on only one or two models. We want to pack many such intelligent models, like your mobile devices. So we are planning to uh, deploy as many uh, smart models as possible into our devices. How can we do this? So RL is a perfect example to compress the model. So you have seen a lot of examples in autonomous vehicles, robotics. RL can be applied wherever there is a sequential decision-taking process uh, or a problem. So here we are applying to shrink our models without the loss of accuracy. So let me show you how we did this. Okay. So network compression is it's a very simple concept that we tried initially. So you have this, uh, this is a very simplified version of a network. So what we did is we removed one layer and retrained our network and then checked for accuracy. So that's what ne network compression is. And you can also further go down and remove or deactivate or activate some of the neurons. You can also go to that level. So uh, a simple network like ResNet uh, would have at least like anywhere from 50 to 100 layers or thousands of trainable parameters to millions of parameters. If you think the combinatorial problem, it is huge. So traditionally, network compression was done by expert, deep learning experts by carefully hand designing the networks, removing particular neurons or activating them and deactivating them. Here, RL helps us automate that process, going through all those uh, number of combinations and then deciding which network is compressed best with the highest accuracy, with the minimal loss of accuracy. So tying back to what uh, Swami mentioned in, in the cases, so here, let me finish the animation. Okay, so here, the whole, those pink colored boxes were given by SageMaker RL. All you need to do is bring in your best trained network, which here it says GE custom environment. The rest is given to you uh, by SageMaker RL. And then once you bring in your network and start your training, so it follows the state action reward. The state is your current network, which is your best trained network. And then the option is to whether remove a layer or not. 
Simple, right? And then the training does and then gives the reward signal is a combination of the accuracy and compression rate. You want the highest compression rate, meaning the smallest model as possible, with highest accuracy, minimal loss from the best trained uh, network that you got in earlier. So let's see some results. So all this happened just within last four weeks with few team members from Swami and two of my team members working together on this. So thanks to you guys. Uh, so earlier when we started off in the first uh, week or the second week when we got this initial uh, sneak preview, it took us like 12 hours to run through this RL exercise. And two weeks ago, last week ago, we got this multi-CPU, multi-GPU trained uh, RL framework. So now the toy example or the ResNet example takes about less than an hour to complete the training and give you the shrunk uh, model. So okay, that's very exciting. So how can we apply to our uh, cases? So we used our ultrasound uh, example and then tried. And then we got approximately about 40% uh, shrunken model. So say if your model is about 100 MB, so the final model is about 60 MB. So that's very promising for our ultrasound scanners, but we won't, we won't stop here. We will continue to tweak and then try to shrink as much as possible. So the master model that we started off was at 78 accuracy, and then we got about 76.5, which is okay for our ultrasound scanners. Uh, it's, it's good to pack more intelligent than you know, the highest, best uh, accurate model. So yeah, at, at GE Healthcare, we focus on improving uh, lives in the moments that matter. So with AWS and SageMaker RL, we're accelerating that AI journey. Thank you. Thank you, Rafa. Wow, such an exciting story on what you could do with reinforcement learning in real-world use cases. Now, let's talk about actually ease of use and what are some of the under-the-hood looks in some of these technologies. So today morning, we actually talked about uh, how do you deploy models across multiple platforms. We talked about why it is too time-consuming. Because at the end of the day, we all want machine learning everywhere. We want to be able to build these machine learning models, not just run them in the cloud. We want to run them in our mobile phones. You want to run them in autonomous vehicles or in industrial vehicles or agricultural vehicles like tractors and so forth. But when you look at this problem, it is really hard because you got to solve it now for the cloud and also you got to solve it for the edge. And what makes it even harder are that not all models are skinny you have like an inherent trade-off between accuracy and performance. Models that are accurate tend to be big and slow, and they are wedded to the framework. Now, I, as a developer, now, I have to actually find this unique developer who actually knows all these things. They gotta be really good at application development. They gotta be good at machine learning. They gotta know performance and troubleshooting. They gotta know various frameworks. They gotta know hardware and they got to actually know ins and outs of computer architecture and tuning it. So, I mean, this is a very, very uh, eclectic group that exists in the world. So this is why, and what's more interesting is that 
Now, I train these algorithms, and then actually train it with different frameworks, and then I have to optimize it and deploy it to the cloud, and then deploy to device, run A-B tests, and let's say now new use cases pop up, or I update my model. Now I got to rinse and repeat for every new device and every model change. So think about it. Now, this kind of problem and optimization is extremely complex. I had to worry about what if my team actually, data scientists uses MXNet, or what if they use TensorFlow, or what if they use PyTorch, or what if they use like gradient boosting? And then I had to worry about where does this model get deployed between an Intel or NVIDIA or so forth. So that's why uh, today we are making it uh, generally available SageMaker Neo. So this is an end-to-end -end system that makes it easy for you to train once and run anywhere and get a performance improvement up to 2x compared to even handwritten uh, code. So how does NEO work? NEO under the hood basically goes through this flow. So to begin with, you provide a model, either written in TensorFlow or PyTorch or MXNet, and into, when you get this model, NEO parses it into a common format, kind of like similar to what most compilers do, right? On, now, the next thing is, it actually optimizes the graph. It detects and exploits patterns in the computational graph to find the most efficient ways of executing it. So it turns out it actually will worry about batch normalization layer is followed by, let's say, an activation function, or it fuses operators, relevant operators together. So it exploits various uh, recurring patterns to make sure it can optimize the execution of graph as efficiently as possible. Then the next thing it does is that NEO recognizes the patterns in the input chase, such as the data arrays or tensors, to make the calculations more efficient. That means, like I as a developer, when I upload the model, I also give configuration values on some of the data. Then it enables NEO to say, here is how I'm going to be optimizing my tensors. And then finally, it will generate the code onto the target processor that you can actually deploy it on. If none of these steps mean anything to you, you really doesn't have to. That's the point of Neo. You can actually train once in the cloud and you can deploy it onto various different platforms. But, but the key innovation here is that you don't have to hire these developers who are aware of different processes and aware of different frameworks and actually know how to run it in the cloud and train it and so forth. How does actually Neo really perform? So if you look at it, it is up to 12 times faster on EC2 MNC instances. This is just a quick sample of the performance gain we get on various popular models. Now, across actually MXNet models or PyTorch or TensorFlow or so forth. So these are really significant gains when you think about it, right? So, and the other key thing with NEO is that we actually are going to be making it open source. Our goal here is to make sure every framework vendor and every platform vendor will be able to contribute and continue to make this ecosystem less challenging for developers as well. So that's kind of Neo in a nutshell on the under the hood look. Now let's take a look at the AI services stack. Andy talked about why dealing with documents is really hard. 
because there is a huge amount of data sitting in enterprises in the form of paper documents. And that's why today morning we announced Textract. Amazon Textract is a brand new AI service that makes it easy for you to extract the text and data from virtually any document. And the key features are like it goes beyond OCR. We call it like OCR++. We are able to detect the underlying key value pairs and tables and so forth. And we have customers like Cox Automotive. They are one of the leading actually uh, uh, automobile uh, technology partners uh, who make it easy for customers to trade and buy and sell cars. And they have this unique challenge uh, where they have to deal with various kinds of documents such as like uh, car registration forms, license records, and uh, different state licenses look different, and different car reports look different. And they have to constantly build these OCR templates and rules to be able to parse them automatically or employ a huge human workforce to be able to parse them. Instead of doing either of these things now, they are excited about using Textract to automate the document processing end-to-end. -end. So how does Textract work under the hood? In fact, what does it mean to understand a document? So to understand a document, you've got to actually kind of uh, see what, how do humans actually understand a document. We as humans, when we read a document, a piece of paper, we look for patterns. We try to look for what are the words in a document. What are the characters? And does it have relevant phrases? And does it actually have like going beyond text? Does it have tables? And does it, what is in a table? Key value pairs and so forth. So all these things needs to be detected when you're trying to understand the image of a document. So that's why in the, when you look at actually this field of OCR and the evolution, we equate it to five levels of complication. So our five levels of difficulty that you need to solve. Level one is kind of like what QR codes try to solve, which is it is a simple way to highly structure your document or codify it so that it's easier for someone to understand it. Whereas level two is what OCR is. I mean, Andy showed in the morning where what OCR does, as traditional OCR systems, is it takes in the document and is basically extracting the text without understanding the content behind the document, whether this is a block of text that is a separate column from the other one, or whether it's a table and so forth. The third level is what you call as like form templates. Imagine you're trying to read a form. You want to identify and explain the templates in a document, kind of like what humans do. When you see the same W2 form, you can kind of say, hey, W2 form has these uh, templates. Here are the keys and values and so forth. And the fourth level is going beyond declaring these templates. You want to be able to automatically detect these templates without even having to write these templates in the form of rules or so forth. And, but you might still need to have certain level of human verification because when you are dynamically verifying it. And the fifth level is literally zero human intervention, you pass anything and you'll be able to get it. So where are we today? This is kind of where Textract is today in terms of the automated document processing. So you can automatically parse any kind of document and once in a while, depending on the confidence threshold scores, you might want to actually run it by human spot checking. Now you might be wondering like, why is this a hard problem? 
I mean, humans are able to parse it really easy. So all these forms, they all look actually, I mean, similar. And we know, actually, like these are same forms. But when you look at it from the point of view of a computer, not a single corresponding pixels or pixel value is in common between these forms. They might have the same field names and values and so forth. But I know it's hard for us to imagine to be a computer to actually plot these the same way a computer does. But when you think about it from the point of a computer that is trying to understand these images, not a single pixel is the same. So that's why with Textrat, we reimagined OCR, where we actually uh, built dedicated models that will actually understand the orientation of the document. Here is an example of like a check, which actually has a landscape orientation. On the other hand, the receipt, you don't, even if it is uh, put in this way, you might want to rotate it 90 degrees so that you can read uh, the text appropriately. Then you have to worry about things like structural variability. For example, IRS puts in one template of W2, but in reality, every company and payroll vendor puts various variations of W2. So you want to be able to understand different structures of the same kind of field, where you worry about actually saying, like, did they change the orientation? Did they change the alignment of column? And then the document variability. This is where actually you had to worry about various aspect ratios and how is the documents and columns going and so forth. Now when you go beyond OCR, when you are actually trying to form or parse complex forms, you have to worry about photometric properties. Here is an example of a form where you have to think about like how is it scanned. Here you can see it is not scanned and uh, fully straight. You have to, it's kind of tilted and the scan quality is kind of not great. And it might have like geometric issues. Here is an example of an, uh, a crumpled uh, receipt. Now, our OCR model needs to actually account for it and even understand the variability in geometric properties and align it. Again, the final challenge is actually detecting tables and cells going beyond actually plain simple documents. This is where when you're parsing a document, you understand the photometric properties, you understand the geometric properties, understand the orientation, you run it through all these things in your training data set, but then the next thing is you need to understand where the document doesn't have text. It actually goes beyond the text. In fact, this is where you first need to understand that you have a table. Now that you understand that you have a table, so we have inbuilt and extract a model to actually first detect a table. Then, once you detect it, you need to be able to understand the cells, irrespective of whether there are actually clear demarcations, such as uh, clear lines to define the boundaries, or you don't have boundaries. So here in TextRat, our table recognition models actually is able to identify the rows and columns, even when there are no explicit boundaries. And then you can actually parse out to say, hey, here are the key values and columns that I need to parse in each and every row. The other interesting challenge when it comes to being able to parse all kinds of forms are that not all tables actually have uniform spacing. I don't know how many of you have observed it, but uh, even in the same table, 
even in many Word documents, there are variable size rows and columns, and uh, each of them tend to be actually sometimes arbitrary, even for different forms. And each of those also tend to have different contexts. Let's take the full name, for example. Here, you have a first name and a last name, and you want to provide the context when you scan a document that the first name, John, is corresponding to the same person, and the last name is Doe, and a middle name is empty here. You want to be able to recognize it. And finally, you want to detect the structure of the document without even any templates. These are some of the key challenges we had to solve in actually understanding the documents and being able to extract the key value association in each of these layers. So you saw all the relevant uh, geometric, photometric, and structural properties we needed to solve. So this is kind of the Amazon TextRight OCR workflow, where you take an image, you run it through segmentation and rectification, and you run it through a reading orientation, and then a word and line detector, and a character recognition, and at the end you get a JSON object that you can actually input it into an Aurora database or Dynamo or your CRM or ERP system, you name it. So that's kind of on the OCR front. Now on the tables and cells, you can actually run the image and run it through the table detection and the cell segmentation and then pass it on on the OCR and then get your JSON object. Now this is the key value where we have a deep learning model detector for detecting the key value regions, and then we understand the association. And then we merge it with the OCR results and run through a language model to improve and understand the context. And that's kind of the underhood look of TextRack. So with this, let me actually pause here and say that uh, I'm really excited about some of the new announcements uh, and the launches we did today because I'm a big believer in unleashing the potential of machine learning to build brand new applications and innovations, such as what Ratna is doing with, uh, in GE Healthcare. And with that, again, thank you for coming. Really excited about it. Uh, uh, once again, have a good read, man. <laughs>